Any business I've run or, you know, or Hemlock company I ran, to me, it's a family. Once I've kind of had a team, I've tried to create a real team atmosphere and I've viewed it as, you know, ultimately I'm accountable. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. My guest today is Mark Bassett. He just stepped down from an impressive tenure as CEO of Hemlock Semiconductor that saw sales surge even in the face of the COVID recession. Mark's worked most of his career in heavy, mature industries, including 11 years rising through the ranks of Dow Chemical. And he's actually Dr. Mark Bassett. He's got a PhD in chemical engineering and 10 peer-reviewed journal articles to his name on topics from nonlinear dynamics to chaos and electrochemical reactions. I thought all of that made him a compelling interview for you, our Scaling Clean listeners, given how many companies in our sectors are growing manufacturing companies with a highly technical product line. Plus, Mark is a generous mentor and a thoroughly wonderful human being. And that's why I'm thrilled to have him on Scaling Clean. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Mike. I, I think I need to hire you as my PR guy. I, you know, I sounded way better than I think I really am. So, well, Been there, done that, and I'll do it again, but no problem. <laughs> Mark, let's start with your background. How would you summarize your career as a corporate leader? It's been a, you know, it's an, been an interesting career. I think one that, uh, you know, frankly, when I began, I, I certainly didn't envision, I don't think anyone could envision it. As you said, I, I'm a PhD chemical engineer, uh, very technical. I actually did a postdoc in Berlin with the uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist and then started in central research, um, doing kind of big Fortran models. Nobody out there probably knows what Fortran is. It was an old engineering language. Uh, for reaction systems. And um, at that point in time, my aspiration was to be, you know, an R&D group leader for a, you know, a blue sky long range R&D group. And um, as I got exposed to more and more things, and I grew as a person, I just had a natural kind of progression to where I am today. And I, I never started even 15 years ago with the idea that, hey, I want to be a CEO. I was really just looking at what I did today. And what did I maybe want to do next? And, you know, and as I look back on my career and all the kind of job decisions that I made and why did I make them, they were all really at the core, a decision that would allow me to be in a role that would make a bigger and bigger impact on the business and, and people. And, and that was you know, how I ended up to where I am today. And again, I never could have envisioned it 30 years ago, frankly. Looking back, do you see inflection points, maybe in your upbringing or in the early stage of, of your career where there were mentors or people who encouraged you that set you up to eventually take over the range at Hemlock Semiconductor? I think early in my career, I had a couple of great, I think, two great bosses who were mentors. Uh, I moved from a central research group to a business research group working for a guy named uh, Brian Keene, who I'm still friends with today. I just spoke to him uh, this weekend. 
And what I learned, what was interesting about Brian was he was super creative, but a lot of technical people just want to, you know, they want to get patents and they, that's all they care about is kind of the intellectual challenge or the interest of doing something. And Brian, what Brian really cared about was how do you use technology to make the business better? And I learned that from him and absorbed that passion. And as a result of that, I got more and more interested intellectually in how it, what I was doing made an impact in business, which led to a bifurcation point for me to get out of technology uh, about nine years in my career and get into um, more of a finance job, which was you know, set up to be a pass-through job. I wasn't going into finance permanently. It was to go on and do something else. And then in that finance job, what I really learned was um, that where you really made or, break, made or broke a business was kind of more on the commercial side of the business, uh, less so on the operations side, although it's important, obviously. And that actually was another bifurcation point for me because I thought I was going to go back more into an operations kind of because my roots were in manufacturing and technology and ended up bifurcating into technology, into a commercial. And again, very early in my commercial career, had a great boss mentor who, again, is still a friend today. That's a common theme, I think, with me. Uh, I like to develop personal relationships with my bosses as well as the people that work with me before me. Um, who taught me, frankly, all of my kind of underpinnings of what I believe commercially on how to win and be a great supplier and to have a great business really came from Pat Godchuk. That this guy I'm talking about, Pat Godchuk. Um, and so I had two great bosses that really kind of formulated in me how to create value uh, both inside the fence line within operations and then outside the fence line commercially. Tell me about the first time you were somebody's boss. What mistakes did you make? And what were the big lessons you carried forward into the years that followed? Yeah. I mean, the first time I was a boss, I was I just had I was in R&D. I had two people working for me. I don't know that I made a lot of mistakes there. I mean, you have two people working for you. I think um, early on, though, I was not a very patient person and I was less inclusive than I could have been. And um I remember my first feedback I got uh, as a, you know, running this business, you know, the person said, you know, like Mark's a great leader, really like working for him, but we get on these conference calls and I'm running a global business and there's a lot of people on the call, you know, and I had this really nasty habit. It's embarrassing to say where I put the phone on mute and basically say something about the person talking and everybody in the room would laugh. And the person said, you know, it's funny. But I frequently wonder, like, when I'm not in the room, what's he saying about me? And they were right. I mean, they were absolutely right. So I really kind of worked on creating a less abrasive, kind of less kind of um, tough culture and try to create much more of a, a still have fun, but a much more inclusive culture. Being inclusive, being more emotionally intelligent, these are nice sounding concepts what I'm really interested in is what did you find the benefits were to you as a corporate leader and to the companies you were working in of that softer style? What benefit did it bring you? So if you're trying to do, you know, like within my own group, my own, the people who work for me, um, you know, I, I was always effective. And like I said, people put up with stuff because they knew I really cared about them. And so 
I think the biggest benefit that I can point to was, was really like, if you're in a big company, like I was Dow Chemical, and you've got something you're trying to accomplish within your business, no matter what, you need peers and other businesses, peers and other functions, management above you to um, support you. And they can either make your life easier or they can make what you're trying to do much, much more difficult. And if your peers in other businesses and other functions think you're a jerk because you treat them poorly or you don't treat them with respect, they can make it a lot harder for you to get what you need to get accomplished in your business. Whereas if you took an extra five minutes to treat them with a little respect and treat, you know, explain to them what you're trying to accomplish and maybe be willing to compromise on a point or two so that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish. Yeah, it may have taken a little longer up front, but it makes getting other stuff done a whole lot easier. Uh, and ultimately I had to learn that the hard way over a series of years. Um, you know, I, again, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it is what it is. You, you have your experiences and your growth and your set of experiences make you who you are. I just wish I had learned that a lot faster. I remember I had a best friend who worked for General Electric during the Jack Welch years. Yep. And I heard from him and I heard from other General Electric contemporaries, these stories about Jack Welch. And, you know, he paid well, but he was really a tough customer to work for. And the story that stuck in my head was from Vic Abate, who used to run GE Renewables. And he said that he went to an end of the year dinner with his counterparts running other General Electric businesses. And Welch walks in the room and he said, two of you at the end of this dinner are going to get promoted and two of you are going to be fired for poor performance. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs> and, and I've been wondering, as I've started this interview series, I begin to wonder, is there a business case for being an asshole? Yeah, I, that's just never been my style. And I just don't think long-term people respond to that, frankly. And I just don't, you know, I, I've always, and this sounds kind of maybe corny or cliche, but any business I've run or, you know, or Hemlock, the company I ran, to me, it's a family. Once I've kind of had a team, I've tried to create a real team atmosphere. And I've viewed it as, you know, ultimately I'm accountable. Now, there are times when, you know, if people fail to deliver or they make major mistakes, you know, you have to, you know, you have to hold people accountable, obviously. But I just don't think that consistent style really holds water or is sustainable over a long period of time or people respond to it. Um, and I think you just start seeing games being played and you see a lot of wasted energy and effort playing the politics in the game of an, in an environment like that versus just one where it's much more of a, a team environment, which is much more collaborative and everyone's got a shared vision and goal of where you're trying to go. I just think where you set up that kind of competition, it's toxic and it's not good long-term. When you've taken over the leadership of a company, what did you learn about selecting the right team? How did you decide to keep one person and replace another? Um, I have kind of four broad criteria I like. Number one, I like talent. Everyone likes talent. and I, I've got a really some real strengths. And I like people like me as well. Uh, 
that I know where my weaknesses are. And I like to surround myself with complimentary people as well, but you have to be talented at something. I like people that take extreme ownership. So like I said, I, you know, this like HSC to me was a family and I gave everything I had to that company and I treated it like it was my own personal company, even though it wasn't. And I want people, other people that have kind of extreme ownership. I want to be working with them because they're going to go above and beyond to deliver exceptional results. They're going to go above and beyond to, you know, help the team win. The other thing that's really important to me is what I just talked about is team. They have to be real team players. If you're not a team player, that is like the easiest way to get off of my team. And then they got to want to get better. So they, they've got to want to be developed and everyone needs to get better. I need to get better from the top guy to the bottom guy. Uh, I want people that want to get better, but if you're working for me, that means you're a leader as well. And you've got to be passionate about helping your team get better too. And that's really my criteria. What have you learned about hiring? It's a crapshoot. <laughs> no, I mean, what I learned a long time ago is, you know, interviewing is just tough. I mean, some people come in and they're an exceptional interview. Um, and they, you know, they interview well, they come off great, they have all the right answers, but then they get in the job and they're really not that exceptional. And um, other people, you know, are a horrible interview. And frankly, I believe for the vast majority of my career, I was a horrible interview, but I think my results always spoke for themselves and I did a great job. And I was kind of in a, a bit of a, oh, I never expected that from him guy. Um, and so I, you know, so I like to generally hire people I have worked with at all possible because I know what I'm getting or people I know has worked, have worked with them. Um, and, you know, because then again, you know, I respect them and I know what I'm getting. You know, if I can't do that or it doesn't work out, I tend to, you know, um, you know, do my best to, when I'm interviewing to test for those kind of criteria we just spoke about. Um, and I, I tend to like to ask kind of weird questions or odd questions to see how people re will respond to them. Uh, the other thing I like to talk about is, is like what things that people have learned. I, I like people that are pretty introspective and are constantly asking themselves, um, you know, what did I learn in that job or what could I have done better? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? I ask them a lot of those kind of questions. What's the guidance you'd offer on firing people? Oh boy. <laughs> you know, just be open, transparent, and honest. I mean, that's all you can do. You know, what, what is it? Why is it that you're letting them go? And again, it depends if you're coming in and you're deciding to let someone go quickly uh, and bringing someone else in that, you know, and you, you know, is one of your guys. Um, it's a different situation than someone who's been working for you for multiple years. And it's been a recurring performance issue. Obviously those are two different situations. Uh, when I've had to deliver tough messages inside, you know, people working for me and I've had to do that, you know, I, again, I sit down and, um, you know, I'm just really transparent with them about the feedback that they're receiving and, um, kind of try to get their honest assessment of where, you know, whether they see it or not. I actually tend to ask them initially, like, well, what do you think your feedback is? Um, and then kind of go from there, but then just being really honest and transparent on, you know, what the deficiencies are and why they're being let go. Going back to the arc of your career, what mm -hmm. drew you to renewables? 
I wasn't drawn to renewables personally. I mean, what the situation was is I was running Dow's, one of Dow's businesses. Dow took direct ownership along with uh, two other companies of Hemlock Semiconductor. Um, and the other, you know, Dow owned 40%, Corning owned 40%, Jeanette owned 20%. Corning, who was the other major owner, basically told Dow that they felt a Dow person should run it. And I was, I was the person that was asked, hey, would you consider running this? And, uh, and I happily jumped at the opportunity um, because it was, it was a new interesting opportunity, but I wasn't like I had a passion for renewables, just being really transparent about it and try to ma manufacture that opportunity for myself. Did you develop a passion for them? I did. I mean, I, you know, to be honest, it was not something I ever thought about or was interested in. Um, but what, it, but it's just such an interesting industry. And, it, you know, again, I've been in, like you said earlier, I've been in these really mature chemical industries that have been around for some of them a hundred years are not evolving very quickly anymore. And what's really interesting about this industry is it's evolving and changing so rapidly. And it's so complex in the sense of technologies evolving, players are evolving, supply chains are evolving, geopolitics are involved. But it's just a super interest, you know, just from a pure business leadership uh, and opportunity it's just a really amazing industry to be involved in just with, because of all the change and complexity that's involved in trying to get something done, uh, at, least, <laughs> at least outside of China. So uh, it, it's been a really interesting challenge and it's obviously gonna be a really important industry for the next you know, number of decades. So it's been a great, I've loved it. How would you describe the role of the effective CEO? If you were gonna teach a, yeah. If you're if you're going to go to Michigan State and teach a business school course, yep. How to be a CEO? How would you open that course with a description? There's a few things. I think one of the biggest roles of a CEO is creating an aspiring shared vision of where all of you are trying to get to. What what are we trying to be, and what can we become, and why is that so special? Uh, because I believe, and and then to create this sense of team. Because I think when it's all said and done, people want to be a part of something and they want to be a part of something special. And so I think one of the big roles as a CEO is to create that aspiring vision of what are we as a collective going to try to become. I think is you know, layered on top of that is you really got to work to create a team uh, because ultimately it is a team. It's no different than a sports team. I love sports analogies. Um, and, it, and, and I think when you have a team, Everyone has a role and everyone wants to feel like their role is important. So I think you have to create a, you know, create an environment where everyone understands what the role is and why it's valuable. I think you've got to create um, an environment that people want to be rewarded and recognized. And so you've got to create that. And then I think people want to have a chance. Most people anyway, want to have a chance to grow and develop both professionally and personally. You want to try to, work on that. And then last but not least, I think it's important to try to have fun and that's the culture side of it. So I think trying to create an inspiring vision and a team, a constructive team culture. And then the other part of that, obviously, and that's the foundation of it all. And um, the other part of it is, I think one of the big jobs of a CEO is to effectively allocate the resources, whether they're people, mm. capital, maintenance, et cetera, and it's really to focus the organization 
on the literally one or two handfuls of things that are really going to move the needle. I think one of the mistakes leaders make is they've got this list of 50 things they want everybody to go work on. And that really, it's a handful of things that really matter and are going to move the needle. And it's your job of, as the CEO to for, focus the organization on those handful of things that are really going to move the needle and then drive execution against those things. So it's create the right culture. And I'm all for an aspirational, positive um, culture where people want to come into work and feel like they're part of something. And it's all about focusing your resources on the few things that really matter and executing against those. So in that hypothetical course you teach, the second lecture you give is the most important advice you would give to younger CEOs of clean economy companies. What would be on the list? Listen, listen and observe, you know, listen to your team, observe your organization and be really visible and present. I think in addition to that, the other big piece of advice I'd give is be really authentic and as transparent as possible. I'd rather you be too transparent than not transparent enough. Okay. And I think authenticity is really, really powerful because people know you're not playing games. And I, I remember, you know, at this point, it was a while ago, I told, I had a coach and I told him I was going to do something and they actually recommended I don't do it uh, because it was going to show vulnerability. And I actually kind of broke you know, broke down into tears as I was sharing this with the organization. It was in front of 60 leaders. And that was turned out to be super powerful Hmm. because it takes courage to do that. And you wouldn't believe how many people came up to me after that and said, you know what, that took guts. I'll run through a brick wall for you because you, you showed that level of vulnerability. And I would just really, young leaders want to be like macho and I know everything. And you know, I you know, don't want to be challenged. That's the exact wrong thing to do. Last question. In business, particularly as a corporate leader, is your success more determined by what you do or by what you actively choose not to do? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I think ultimately it's a little bit of both. When it's all said and done, you've got to execute against the few things that really matter. Now that gets to your second point, which is, I think, again, one of your big jobs as a leader is to eliminate work. I don't know how many leaders I've seen that create work. And so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a little bit of both. You know, you've got to eliminate the noise and focus the organization on the the really big things that matter. Mark Bassett, this has been a terrific conversation. I don't know that I've ever had a boring one with you. (laughs) I thank you for being on Scaling Clean. And I think that people are going to get a lot of benefit from your words of wisdom. So thank you for your mentorship of me. Thank you for your willingness to be on the show. And thank you for the work you did for the clean economy. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. I really enjoyed it as always. I love these discussions and anytime let me know and I'll be happy to get back on. Hey, our thanks to Mark Bassett for his time today. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. 
We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.